0: Okay, gang. Should we get underway? Yeah. All right. Nice to Thanks see you.
1: Rabbi,
0: and thank Was that? <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Short,
1: short. I know this is uh, I guess
0: this is the pre. It's the pre Pesach crunch. There's a lot of things going on
1: tonight.
0: Okay. No problem. Okay. So I'm going to do something with you, which is kind of new for me. Um, the uh, actually rather new. I'm going to share with you an idea. Um, which I started developing in some way, shape, or form um, with the help of a colleague of mine, Emmanuel Shalev, uh, about three weeks ago, and stumbled upon with him a uh, major new insight uh, last night. So I thought I would share it with you. You guys are the first folks to hear about this. This will be in kind of rough form, but let me kind of show it to you. There's a couple of questions that I want to talk to you about. Um, let me begin with uh, a few questions, two questions in particular, regarding uh, what is arguably the central symbol or one of two central symbols of the Seder night, matzah. Matzah, as you probably well know, is an enigmatic symbol. It's enigmatic because if somebody stopped you on the street on the plane, and asked you a trivia question, said, so why do we eat matzah on Pesach? Right? Why do we eat matzah? What's it supposed to remind us of? What exactly would you say? Okay, so one possibility is you would say, B'chipazon. it reminds us of the haste with which we left Egypt. Right? And uh, that we didn't even have enough time to, you know, to bake our bread. And, and uh, and the words of the Haggadah until uh, the Master of the Universe came and redeemed us. So that's why we eat matzah. And yet, that's not the only thing the Haggadah tells us about why we eat matzah. In fact, it's not the only thing the Torah tells us about why we eat matzah. The other reason we eat matzah is because it's lechem oni. Halach <laughs> The Aramaic translation, this is the poor man's bread, the the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate when they were in Egypt. The problem is it's very difficult to understand exactly how these two visions of matzah live together because at face value they seem to contradict one another. Right? And I was like, so why is it that we eat matzah? Like what exactly is matzah supposed to remind us of? Is it supposed to remind us of the haste with which we left Egypt? Or is it supposed to remind us of what we ate when we were already in Egypt, right? and what right so the (laughs) weird thing is that then it sounds but it sounds like that's something new right it sounds like like it sounds like like and you didn't even have enough time to make your bread like like you know big surprise you didn't like oh my gosh you just left with matzah and you didn't even have time to to make your bread by the way the other the other problem here which is that um, which is that, if you want to get a little bit more granular, um, we're actually commanded to eat matzah first at what point? As the 10th plague was about to happen, and the 4th the 10th plague is about to happen, God actually appears to Moshe and says that you're going to eat the carpenter Pesach, al matzah to merom you're going to eat it with matzah. So there's actually a command to eat it with matzah before... <coughs> everyone's all rushed and ready to eat it out like you see with matzah and then lo and behold at night or the next night when actually when they've already left and they're encamped with Sukkot that's when they find themselves with this bread on their backs and it's like oh my gosh you know we uh, um, didn't even have enough time to make it rise isn't that funny as if that was a surprise as if you'd never heard of matzah before as if all of a sudden, this is the genesis of the thing. Here we are, and the uh, bread has even risen, and oh my goodness, it's so surprising. What's so surprising? You ate it when you were slaves, supposedly, like for 400 years when this, I guess, right? And, th- and then you're commanded to eat it the night before, and then all of a sudden, oh, you it-, it just seems very strange. It almost seems contradictory. It's just very hard to square the circle in how you understand why we eat matzah. So I'd like to discuss this paradox with you. Um, tonight. Um, I remember actually years ago I wrote an article about this um, called Wine, Matzah, and Tchaikovsky, which I actually published in the paper. Um, and uh, but it, when, when I argued about the notion of a symbol that has opposite meanings, what that means, and it's all a very nice discussion, but it sort of doesn't answer the brass tacks problem, which is like, okay, but like tachlis. Right? What is Matzah supposed to remind you of? Like, you know, and, and which is it? It doesn't seem like it could be both, exactly. So, how do I understand that? Here's another question I have for you. Let's say, is really poor man's bread. Halach This is the poor man's bread. This, this broken, tasteless, little nothing bread that we ate in Egypt. For all those years. Isn't it strange how that doesn't seem to square with the narratives after they leave Egypt of how people remember Mitzrayim? There's two narratives, one in Parshas Pashalach, the other in Parshas Balosra, where the people remember, of <coughs> all things, the bread of Egypt. And they remember it in highly favorable terms, right? In Parshas Beshalach, right? The complaints, the very first complaints of the people, other than water, are for bread. Zacharnu, they remember. What do they remember? Zacharnu Alechem asher chaldu b'mitzrayim lasova. We remember the bread that we ate in Egypt. To our seat, how do you translate lasova? To our satiety. To our satisfaction. There we go to our satisfaction. We have plenty of bread to eat, delicious, wonderful bread, right? When we're eating by the flesh pots with the bread. It's like, they seem to really like, I mean, like, I don't know about you, but it, like, if I was eating matzah, it's not like, you know, it's and then later on, again, they don't even like the man. Why? Because they remember the bread that they... Right? The bread that we used to eat for free. In Egypt, we had all the bread we wanted, a bread basket, right? The bread baskets of Egypt. I don't know, like, what, but so how does that square with halach Maanya, lacham oni, the terrible bread that we had, and it was, it used to, it was just as tasteless as this? Like, it, it just seems odd. It, it, it seems odd that the slaves would be so pining for such lousy bread. They seem to be pining for wonderful bread. They seem to think they, they used to have wonderful bread. So, which is it? Okay, you with it me? Be, well, it could be I mean Saying, you know, they're, they're so upset that they're, they're even, you know, lamenting the fact that they don't even have matzah. Yeah, so it's possible that...
1: It's a sign of the economy. Because if there's bread produced, that means the economy is running while well. there's water being run, the agricultural is yeah. running, and then the poor man's bread... Man's that they went down and, and they, they had to pray to God. Probably they had to develop this relationship with God, which is the whole whole relating to God. It's probably. See what I'm saying? They, yeah. they, they, bread is in, in traditionally a, a it's, it's a it's a it's an image of prosperity. It's an image of a staple
0: of life. Okay. So when the slaves are thinking back to the bread, they seem to be thinking comfort about and comfort, comfort and, and leisure. Exactly. Right? And yet, the Haggadah doesn't introduce the bread that way. The Haggadah seems to suggest that even when we were slaves, we didn't have the comfort and leisure. So, did we have comfort? Now, the posit- you're raising an interesting possibility, which it could be that their memory is playing tricks on them. Right? It could be that, really, it was awful. They never had decent bread. But, the, you know, the, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. When you're in Egypt, when you're in the desert, you remember things differently. And your mind plays tricks on you, and you think it was wonderful when in fact it wasn't. Right? That's possible. Yeah.
1: Then, then but so Hashem commanded them to eat the matzah, but they put up another loaf to take out with them for, for to go with them the next day, and that didn't have time to rise.
0: Okay, so if you're right, right, you can you can technically construct a convoluted scenario in which maybe it works. You can say, Well, originally when they were slaves, they were eating really lousy bread. Then there was this time towards the end where they really weren't slaves, they really weren't free, so they didn't have to really eat the lousy bread, so maybe their bread got a little bit better for a little while, but then, lo and behold, they were commanded to eat matzah, and then they didn't have enough time to even eat the, as they came out to eat the matzah, so they they were back to matzah again, and then, right? uh, Yeah, so that could be, could be, technically could be, so the question is, if you're right, right? What's the meaning of all of that, right? Why would God come out of the clouds of all things and say, okay, now we're back to matzah? And strangely for a different reason, right? Because like because you don't have enough time, right? So it's like, it's not that you should be eating, because it'd be one thing if it's said in Karban Pesach that, that you should eat the matzah because it's Lechem Oni, or something like that, but but it, it, it sounds like we have this whole new reason why we eat matz because you didn't have enough time for your bread to, to rise, and then, which is a different than eating the poor man's bread. Just complicated. So the question is, like, how do we make sense of it? Like if, even if you're right technically, so how would we make sense of that? Why? Like in other words, You can say, well, I can, I can give you this timeline, and when the needle through, but now if somebody says, okay, but so what? So what? So I'm here in 2017, what am I supposed to make of all of that? What message am I supposed to take from matzah other than you know, figuring out exactly what they were eating at any particular stage? Okay, so that's what I want to discuss with you. right? What does it all mean? Yes. I have a suggestion. Yes.
1: Matzah is the lechem de mehanusah. It's the lechem of Aruna. And they're leaving a life of comfort and security. The Egyptian life is a life of security because it was the strongest empire in the world, ostensibly and in that illusionary way that it was. Mm-hmm. Like they knew. What? Yes. It was the, the life they knew, though. It was the life of security that they knew. Mm-hmm. Now they're leaving that mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. eat the lechem zone, which mm-hmm. represents insecurity, the opposite of what was happening in Egypt. Their routines, mm-hmm. their, their brains, their mentalities.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what happened was was that they went to a place of insecurity, and they, and they basically, that's the life of the Muna. The life of the Muna is a life of constantly davening and constantly trying to find Hashem. Because you're living a life of journey. You're living a life, of, you're on a path. You're going somewhere. You need to get somewhere.
0: Okay, so it's a nice idea. And we'll come back to it. And I think there's something to it. But the question still is, so Tachlis, how does that answer our questions? So in other words, okay, so if matzah is... Is the bread of Mehemnusa. So let's just say on the Pesach seder that we eat the bread because it's the bread of Nusa. Done. Just let's des- forget about. But we don't have to ask about. We don't have to talk about Lachmoni. We shouldn't even really talk about Chipazon. We should really just talk overtly in the seder about it being the bread of Mehemnusa. Why are we focusing on these other things and two contradictory other things? So and. Uh, or, but just to throw your piece in the mix, right, how does lechem and memnusa have to do with all of this? In other words, whatever shot we say in matzah, right, how is it that we understand chazal or the Kabbalah speaking of bread specifically as, this, the, as the bread of faith? How does that fit in with the mix? Okay, let me um, raise another couple questions with you. Um... I want to talk with you something about about something which we don't actually talk that much about, um, but that is what we do on the day after the first day of Pesach, specifically the bringing of the Karban omer. Okay, omer is brought on the day after Pesach, um, and the omer is full of all sorts of mysteries. It's not exactly clear. I mean, technically we could describe it. It's a carbon that is brought that is matir chadash, that you can eat from the new crops. Uh, for personal use after you bring this carbon, is brought in the day after uh, the first day of Pesach, according to the Prushim, right? And this is a big debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees as to when you bring the to Omer. And the reason why it's such a big debate by the way, is because the text is famously obscure about it, right? The text seems to make it really hard for us, and the truth is it's a good reason to sort of vote Sadducee in the next election, you would think. I mean, just because, like, the text sort of seems to support the Sadducees. I mean, Text says that when do you bring the to omer? You can read it right over here. All right? It says, you bring the Korban over right over here. The omer you'll see it in Pasad Yud Aleph in red. You the, the, the Korban is brought on the day after Shabbos. So you know, any person reading that would kind of think the day after Shabbos would be the Sunday some Sunday. It's brought on Sunday. Right? Whenever the Torah is brought, is for sure brought on Sunday. That's how the Tzedukim actually read it, but that's not how the Prussian read it. The Prusham said that Shabbos actually is referenced to Pesach. Right? It's actually brought after the first day of Pesach. Leading into the questions like, okay, so, I mean, you know, why make it so hard? Let it just tell us when it was brought? Why, why characterize Pesach as something which you haven't called it yet? You can call it a Shabbos. Now, it's not like there's no reason to call Pesach Shabbos. There is an idea of Shabbos with Pesach, specifically elsewhere in the Torah we say, or right? getting rid of chametz is described in Shabbos terms, taking a rest from chametz, getting rid of chametz, banishing it as the language of Shabbos is used. So it's not like there's no justification to talk of Pesach that way, but it is an unusual way to talk about Pesach. The only thing is it's not an isolated thing. It's like the Torah seems to go out of its way to bring up this Mimachar shabbos thing whenever it comes to the Omer because what then happens in the Omer? So then you start counting, right? So how long do you count in your Omer? You count... 49 days. But it doesn't say 49 days. It does, but the way it phrases it actually is in terms of Shabbos, right? So we say right? and So you do all of this, and then from that day after the Shabbos, you start counting. What do you start counting? You start counting Sheva So there's Shabbos again. It's like the Torah is going out of its way not just to be 49 days, but it wants to start talk, talking about Shabbos One more time when it talks about the Omer, it's like we can't get enough of talking about Shabbos. So you count seven times seven Shabbosos, right? Or seven Shabbosos, seven times seven days, and then look at this: until when? Until Shavuos. But how is what is Shavuos described as? Look. Where is it? You see it? Where is it? Let me. Oh, there? Is it here? We go. Right? See Pasuk Tad Zayin here? I'm sorry. Pasuk Tzain. Well, you'll see Tad Zayin, Right? Ad Mimachras HaShabbas HaShviz. Oh, there it is again. Mimachras HaShabbas is back. Until when? Until the day after the... But now what does it mean? The day after the seventh of those Sabbaths that you were counting. It's like, boy, we're really hooked on the day after Sabbath when it comes to Omer. It's like, what's with the day after Sabbath when it comes to Omer? That's just right. Are you with me? It's like over and over again. Strangely, when the Omer is done, it's Shavuos time. But instead of calling it Shavuos, right? We talk about this as a day. Mimoshvatechem taviu lechem tnufashdayim. A day when we bring a special offering known as shtei halechem, right? Is there any reason why we bring shtei right? halechem on Shavuos? What does that mean? Um, specifically, shnei esronim specifically two isaron's worth of flour, and chametz Te'afenah. It has to be baked as chametz. Interestingly, so if the last holiday was all about matzah, this holiday is specifically about bringing chametz bread. Right? Why do we bring Hamid's bread? What's the meaning of bringing Hamid's bread specifically on Shavuos? Why do we bring two loaves? What's it all about? Okay. So I want to suggest that there is a fascinating mystery afoot here um, when it comes to uh, the Omer. Um, And you can see in the following ways the Omer bridges two holidays. Those holidays, of course, are Pesach on the one hand, and Shavuos on the other. 49 days. One holiday ostensibly celebrates the Exodus, the other ostensibly celebrates the giving of the Torah, even though the Torah doesn't quite characterize it that way explicitly, but that's what it seems to be. Right? Okay. Now, if there is historical meaning to holiday number one, the Pesach, which is not just do we observe it through eating matzah and abstaining from chametz, but we remember a historical event, i.e. the Exodus. And if there is a historical event at the core of holiday number two, at the other end of the bridge, which is Shavuos, and that historical event would be Matan Torah, then might curious minds wonder whether there is also a historical event at the root of the Omer Offering, and if so, what might it be? Well, Turns out... The first
1: time Omer is mentioned is the
0: Mon. And the only other time Omer is mentioned is the month, And it's the context of Shabbos. The only other time Mon is the, that, that Omer is ever mentioned in the Torah is with reference to the Mon. Um... Is it possible that the Omer is a commemoration of the Man? The truth is, the more you think about it, the more aspects of the the Omer start to remind you of the Man. Let's start thinking about the Man. The Man was also the moment at which we first came across the idea of Shabbos. (coughs) Even before Shabbos was commanded in the Ten Commandments, Right? The very first time we had Shabbos is we discovered Shabbos when the man wouldn't fall on Shabbos in Pasha's Pashalach. That's what it says. And then lo and behold, when we have this Omer celebration, right? Because remember the Omer, the Omer, it was an Omer Lagul Golet, an Omer for every head. That's what you were allowed to collect, only an Omer Lagul golet. And then we have the celebration of the Omer. Are we celebrating the man somehow? Is man bringing the man that which is matya chadash and allowing us to eat bread? And why would remembering the man be that which allow us to eat the bread? Um, but it sounds like it. And, and by the way, think even about mimachor as a Shabbos. If I told you the idea of tomorrow associated with Shabbos, is that associated with anything with the man? Take these two ideas, tomorrow and Shabbos. What does that have to do with man? Anybody? Oh, you collect the double portion on Friday because tomorrow is going to be Shabbos. So it's almost like an inverse of that is the day after Shabbos, right, is when you start doing the hour. There's the Friday when I get my double portion and then Shabbos. Then I, go, I count for my seven times seven weeks and the day after Shabbos. And what do I do on the day after Shabbos? I bring what? Lechem, how much Lechem. Shte is that interesting? Two loaves, what does that remind you of when it comes to mun? Duh, there's my double portion of mun. My Shte Halechem, and just in case you weren't sure, how much flour is used in the Shte Halechem? Shte Esronim Solet. Two Isaron's worth. How much mun were you allowed to collect in each portion? An Omer's worth of mun. And the Torah makes a point at the very end of the Mun story of telling you how much an Omer is. Ha-Omer as An Omer as an Isaron. If an Omer is an Isaron, then shtey in solet is literally exactly the amount of grain that you would have had in two portions of Mun. That's what you bring with your two portions of bread, not Mun. So, interestingly seemingly what we seem to have is some sort of observance the day after Shabbos after we experience this chametz kind of, this matzah kind of bread the very next day right we get this man remembrance thing which allows us to eat the new crop of bread but after seven times seven of these Sabbaths we bring that sort of double portion Of bread to God so in other words God gave us a double portion of mun but now we're reciprocating seemingly by giving God a double portion of bread so God's bread looks like mun right and he gives us a double portion our bread looks like bread and we give God a double portion almost as if to say thank you for that mun with all that whole Shabbos thing right okay Just add a little bit of complexion to that. Let's dig a little bit deeper because I think the sources of the Omer and the sources of the Mon and indeed the sources of the Shabbos which was revealed to us through the Mon actually go back even deeper in time in the Torah than this. There's actually an earlier antecedent for the idea of Shabbos even before the Mun. Where was that? It's actually a trick question, because, yeah? The word
1: Shabbos, the root of the word Shabbos appears
0: in the car, Appears in the story. Oh, very good. Give that lady a free Coke. The root of the word Shabbos actually appears at one point earlier, aside from Shabbos Bracious, but one point in historical time aside from Shabbos Brashus, in human historical time. And it appears in the worst, most brutal narrative of slavery ever recorded in Egypt, what I'm henceforth going to call the evil pharaoh narrative. Okay? The evil pharaoh narrative is that story, remember, when everyone's making bricks, then he takes away the straw, and then so you have to make double the, right? All that. That, whole, that actually is the beginning of the idea of Shabbos and the Torah, how? Because how did that whole thing get started? Why did Pharaoh go off on a whim and deprive us of our of our allotment of straw to make bricks? He impetuously decided to, to ban the providing of straw to the slaves and to make them collect the straw. It wasn't a plan. He just impetuously decided that as a result of a fairly reasonable request that Moshe had made to him the opening gambit in UCS Mitzrayim. What had happened? What happened was, Moshe came to Paro and said, Look, b'ni b'chor Yisrael, my firstborn nation is Israel, says God. Send out my nation and let him go serve God. Paro's response was unambiguous in denial. Paro said, mi Hashem asher Eshma b'kolo, who is God that I should listen to him? And Pharaoh didn't listen to God, but then Moshe, instead of retreating, interestingly enough, because Pharaoh is pretty definitive, he said, "Who was God that I should listen to Him?" Lo I don't know anyone by the name of God. The gamet Israel, the and I will not send forth Israel. At that moment, Pharaoh decided to—sorry, Moshe decided for some strange reason to press the point. And he presses the point in a strange kind of way. He sort of retreats, but presses his point nevertheless. He says, okay, look, Pyro, I'm not asking you to send out the Jews. I'm really not asking you to recognize God. Let's drop the theology. I have a pretty simple request for you. It's just based upon basic human consideration for your slaves, right? You're a polytheist. You believe in many gods. We have a God just like you have a God. Everybody's got their own God. And we want to worship Him just like you worship your God. We do believe in religious freedom around here. A little bit of First Amendment rights would be nice to have. We're just asking for a little bit of time to worship our God because your poor slaves are afraid that they are going to get plagued with pestilence or a sword or something. If they don't go and worship their God, they're very worried. We would just like a long weekend to go off in the desert three days and we'll be back, mind you, we will be back but we just need some time to worship our God. Could we please have three days? It's a reasonable request. Paro screams, right? He erupts. He says, near pim, you're lazy. him That's why you're screaming and saying, I'll teach you not to be lazy. You guys have too much time on your hands. I must not be working you hard enough. So that's when Paro capriciously comes up with his plan. I'm no longer gonna provide the straw for you. Do not continue to provide straw for them, he tells his past masters. But the quota of bricks that I am imposing upon you, do not take away any of it. Um, And he imposes that terrible law, that terrible quota upon the people. Then the Torah goes out of its way to tell us what happened. The decree is given, and the Egyptian taskmasters enforce it upon the Jewish underling taskmasters, and the Jewish underling taskmasters enforce the new quotas on the slaves, and they beat them. The Jews beat their own, and and when the people can't come up with as much bricks as before, the Jewish taskmasters scream at them and say, Lama lo chilitem Chokem, why haven't you fulfilled your allotted amount? By the way, that's another interesting word. The very first use of the word chok for law is gonna be right there. Lamachlitem why didn't you um, why didn't you uh, what's his name? Why didn't you finish your quota? The word for law there is quota. Um, and then the people come, the, the, the Jews scream to, the, to their Jewish taskmasters. The Jewish taskmasters scream back to the Egyptian taskmasters. And the Egyptian taskmasters come back to Pyro and they say, you know, look, how can it, you know, it's not logical. We can't give you the same amount of bricks if we don't give us the straw, right? To which Pyro just repeats his earlier claim. It's just not like he's not listening, right? and he says one more time nirpim atem nir Pim. you're lazy, you're lazy that's why you want your three day holiday the very end of the story the Jewish taskmasters come to Moshe and they do not have kind words for him let God judge between you and between us Asher you've made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of his servants, to give a, you've given them an excuse, you've given them a pretense, you've given them a sword in their hands to kill us. And Moshe in motion, turn goes back to God in a cascade and says to God, Hashem Lama Lamaze, why have you done evil to this people? Lamaze why have you sent me? Um, things, it have just gotten worse. But you have not. Um, you have not um, saved the people. God says, look, I'm just getting started. You wait and see. It's interesting of those words, let God judge between us. You know, when did that happen? When did God ever judge between us? Anyway, it turns out that this all got started because of this request for a three-day holiday. But the three-day holiday request was a request for Shabbos. The language of it was, sorry, Paro's language, Vayom Pyro Paro, Rabim Atta There's a lot of slaves I got. And now listen to this language. The hishbatem otam misiblotam. There it is. You're giving them time off from their burdens. I'm losing my GNP. Get back to work. But that word hishpatem as a verb is the first time you will find Shabbos in human history. Shabbos will then appear again in the story of the man. Turns out that it's not just the story of the man. It's not just the idea of Shabbos which gets echoed in the story of the Mun. But the truth is the entire story of the Mun is an echo of everything about the evil Pharaoh story. Right here on your screen, you have the two stories side by side. On the right-hand side of the screen, you have the evil Pharaoh narrative. The left-hand side of the screen, you have the manna narrative. All of the color coding shows you all the links between these narratives. One thing after another, every single piece of language from the manna narrative is lifted out of the evil pharaoh narrative, which is, like, really odd. I'll give you some examples. Take a look at the yellow. When the people come to collect the manna, they collect their allotted quota of man that particular day. What does an allotted quota of man per day remind you of an evil pharaoh story? The allotted quota that you needed to make for your bricks. And that, in fact, is so. Look at this. Look at where Dvar Yom Biomo sim," And the past masters were very cruel. You finished, but you haven't yet delivered your quota of bricks. Dvar Yom Biomo. In case you think Dvar Yom Biomo is all over the place, it's not. Right? These are the two times that you have this in, in Tanakh. It's a very unusual kind of language. Um, and take a look at the purple over here. Go out in the fields and find your, your straw, wherever you find it. Oh, look at this with the mun. You will not find it in the fields, right? Not finding in the fields, in the mun, versus go out and find the straw in the fields, in the case of the bricks. Let's look at the green. If you left the man over, what would happen to it? It would actually... Worms would infest it, and then ash, it would stink. What does stink remind you of when it came to the evil Pharaoh narrative? The people said, you've made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. Do you understand? It's like this whole language, every last part of it, even this notion of more or lessness, right? Remember when Pyro says, "Don't give them any more straw, but don't make them produce any less bricks." What does more or lessness remind you of with the mun story? Do you remember that no matter how much mun you collected, whether you were marbe, whether you collected more mun or mamit or less mun, you ended up with the same amount of mun. You with me? It's like, in point after point, these things are similar. And lo and behold, Shabbos. Shabbos shows up. Pharaoh had said, nobody got Shabbos. The mon, one of the laws is, you can't go collecting, and on Shabbos, there's not going to be, uh, there's not going to be, um, Shabbos is not going to be any mon. Instead, there'll be a double portion. Lach on your mind. What does double as much remind you of if you go back to the evil Pharaoh narrative? <laughs> Right. Here you have to double as much work, right? Instead of just making bricks, you have to do double as much because you have to gather straw and make bricks. So here God's giving you double as much also, but he's giving you double as much money. Don't
1: you see that there's a, there's a competition here? There's a competition between Moshe and, and Paro and Moshe's source, Moshe's agenda and, and God's agenda and, and Paro's agenda. That's what I'm saying before, is that they're both they're going through a transformation they've been pulled Okay into so let's directions.
0: so let's try and quantify that. Let's try to understand what that is. Because the devil's advocate position I could take is is one second this makes no sense of all stories. It's like, you know, why in this Mun story would God be be aping this language from the worst moments of of slavery, right? It's like it's, it's you know, these poor guys they be used terribly by Pharaoh, and all of a sudden you come, and God can't think of any other language to use than all the language of evil Pharaoh? The answer is, as you suggest, the answer is that the reason why, seemingly, the, the, the Mun narrative is connected to the evil Pharaoh narrative is not because God is saying, I am Pharaoh, Right? But God is actually seemingly the opposite of that. God is trying to explain to you why he is not Pharaoh. Like, because you might think God is Pharaoh. Why might you think God is Pharaoh? What are the two things that Pharaoh gave you? Food. He gave you bread. What else did he give you? Gave you one more thing. Now, that's part of food. The other thing he gave you was law. He gave you quotas. He gave you brick-making quotas. That was the deal. Give you two things. Give you all the food you want. And these are the bricks I need. That's as long the deal. What? Well, the bricks, I don't care about you. Just get me my bricks. My bricks. You guys are my brick-making tools. Got to feed my brick-making tools or I can't go get, 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 get no bricks. Right? So I give you food to feed you guys, and I get my bricks. The funny thing is, God also gives us bread and laws. Together with the bread, we got our first laws, three of them. Only an Omer LaGulgolet, only an Omer per head. No hoarding till tomorrow. No collecting on Shabbos. Three simple laws. You might think God is Pharaoh. God gives you laws. Just like Pharaoh gave you laws, God gave you bread. Just like Pharaoh gave you bread, what's the difference? There's two masters that expect you to keep the laws. Two masters that give you bread. And so why should I do that? Leading, by the way, and you could just extrapolate this question a little bit further. Why do we have a holiday called Shavuos where we celebrate the law? Why can't I just take the position that God is just evil Pharaoh? He expects me to do all these things, 613 things. No compromise. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do everything. Just like Pharaoh, all these laws, all these quotas of laws, I've got just the other time. What's the difference? This narrative is designed to help the people understand the difference. How? That's right. The difference is there was no relationship the first time around. But it's more than that. Let's talk about purpose. What was the first time around for Pharaoh, what was the purpose of the bread? And what was the purpose of the law? For Pharaoh, why did I give the slaves the bread? as Much bread as they wanted, by the way. Chinam, free, totally free bread. It's not like you have to pay for it in the commissary. Eat all the bread you want. Why is Pharaoh so generous? Pharaoh care about me? Why is it, right, all this delicious bread? Why is Pharaoh giving me bread? Hmm. So I can work. How does Pharaoh view me? What does Pharaoh want? Pharaoh wants bricks. Interesting, by the way. Think about bricks and bread. What do you make bread out of? Wheat. What part of wheat? The top part, the little tiny top part. What do you make bricks out of? The bottom part. Take water, add wheat. It just depends which part of the wheat. Add the bottom part, the waste part, and you get bricks. Add that little good part at the top, and you get bread. Right? So it's all about bread and bricks and law. So God says, so Pharaoh says, look, I need bricks, but there's a price to pay to get bricks, right? The price is bread. I have to give you bread because it's the fuel through which you get energy through which you can fulfill the quotas to make bricks. So I give you all this bread, right? Okay. What does Pharaoh care about, though? Does he care about me? No. Do you see it's seductive? Because normally if somebody gives you bread... Nice, warm bread. Like, it's a gift. They care about you. They're feeding you. That's a nice thing. Normally, when you get food from someone, you, that's a nice thing. It's a gift, right? Pharaoh gave me food, and it looked like a gift, and it smelled like a gift, and it tasted like a gift, but it wasn't a gift because in Pharaoh's eyes, what was I? I was a brick maker. I was just a tool through which he could make bricks my humanity didn't matter the only thing that mattered is maximizing the brick output so if you come to pharaoh and say your slaves would like a three-day holiday pharaoh comes and says that gets in the way of my gmp all right so i've got a lot of slaves and you're getting in the way of my production schedule what are you doing And they say well they really like to serve their god they're lazy they have too much time on their hands Right. Let me work them harder. I see that I can actually maximize my brick profits if I actually make them do more. They they can actually do more. Let them do more. Now, what if I told Paro, but you're you're hurting your slaves. It's not fair. You would say we need fair. I'm talking these. They're, they're tools. They're things. They're. They are things, they're they're just brick-making apparatus. If one wears out, another one replaces them. So we'll wear some out, Uh, I can't be bothered to maintain them that well. I give them fuel, it's like a car, right? You gotta give gasoline to the car, but you don't care that much because you have a big fleet of cars, you don't really care about maintaining them, they're like taxis. They eventually wear out after a while, they're on the streets of Manhattan, all right, so they wear out. You give them gasoline until they wear out, and then somebody else replaces them. That's the slaves. Right? So you wear them down. And that's okay. God says, I also give you bread. And I also give you laws. But I'm not Pharaoh. Why do I give you bread? You know what the difference between me and Pharaoh is? I don't want any bricks. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if I don't want any bricks, then it means I'm not in this for me. The bread is not for me, not just so I can maximize your efficiency, and the laws are not for me. So don't think that you're doing me a favor by keeping these laws. And don't think that by eating this bread I have some ulterior motive. There's no bricks. I don't need that from you. So why are you giving me bread? Why are you giving me laws? If you don't get anything out of it, the answer is I'm giving you bread because I care about you. I'm giving you bread because you're hungry. I'm giving you bread for the reason why you should give bread to someone, because you love them and you want to provide them with delicious sustenance. That's why I'm giving you bread. And why am I giving you laws? What? Because I care about you. I care about you. How do you know? Look at the laws. Look at the three laws. What are those laws designed to do? They're very, very basic. What do those laws do? Law number one. Everybody collects an Omer La Gugolet. No more, no less. Just an Omer per head. Not only that, it's a self-enforcing law. Turns out, miraculously, if you tried to collect more than an omer Google it, you came home, there was only an omer. If you didn't manage to collect an omer Google, it, when you came home, there was an omer. Look how that differs from Pharaoh. Right? What did Pharaoh do? When Pharaoh said, that I'm changing the rules, you guys all have to collect the straw. And I want the same number of bricks. Otherwise I will beat you within an inch of your lives. What do you think happened then? Play it out. What actually happened? The Torah kind of gives you a sense of it. The, the laws went down from Pharaoh to the Egyptians, from the Egyptians to the Jews, Jewish taskmasters, from the Jewish taskmasters to the slaves, and they were beaten. We hear that the slaves were beaten. So what was it like in the fields, those moments? What was happening? Put yourself in the shoes of a slave. What are you thinking? I had better hoard as much straw. Straw is a scarce resource. There's only so much straw. If I am strong, what will I do? I will hoard as much as I can in hopes that I will not be the one beaten. And if I am weak, what will happen? I will be beaten. There's a competition and scarce resources that creates social Darwinism, that creates a situation where the weak will will be filtered out and the strong will win and there's no social security. And the final aspect of slavery is that the master will succeed in breaking down the social bonds of the people by turning one brother against another in a competition for scarce resources. No, that's my straw. Get away. Law number one when it comes to money, no hoarding. Omer la Gulgola. Enforced by God. Not by beating you, but if you try to collect more, you come home and there's less. If you, try, if you don't, can't collect enough, when you come home, there's more. Right? That's the way the law works. Law number two, no hoarding again. No trying to keep it until tomorrow and hoard it until tomorrow. Why would you hoard it until tomorrow? Because you're insecure, because there's someone, right? I, I, I've been trained in the field. I'm always out there to collect more and collect more and collect more. No, tomorrow God will give it to you again. So you just need this much now. You're secure. You're good. Trust him. He's going to give you more tomorrow. Law and self enforcing. What happens if you break the law? You don't get beaten like it happened in Egypt. No. If you break the law, it rots and it stinks. Back in Egypt, what stank? The people stank. In the eyes of Pharaoh. You made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh, what do you want? You ask for a little bit of humanity. You ask for a little bit of time off. But Pharaoh says, no, you stink. What's the worst thing an abusive father, an abusive authority figure can say? You stink. Right? To degrade the person, right? As if they're just excrement. You stink. By the way, if you think about brick making, it's using the excrement of wheat Right? to make bricks instead of the good parts of wheat to make bricks. If you stink, you stink because you're fetid, because you're like excrement. No, that's not the way it works. People in God's world are never excrement. Even if you break the law, you're not excrement. If you break the law, it doesn't work, right? It's just going to rot. It's going to rot. You're not going to rot. Okay? Law number three, Shabbos. How did it all start? Because Pharaoh didn't want to give you any time off. Oh, Pharaoh didn't want to give you any time off? God's one insistent rule, the only thing that's absolutely non-negotiable, time off. Time off. I need you to have some time that you can just be. The definition of slavery was that there's no time to just be. If you had extra time on your hands, you were lazy and you had to work more. Because the bricks call. And if there's extra time, then the time is used to make bricks. There's no such thing as extra time if you're a slave. The definition of not being a slave is you have extra time. You have time when you don't have to work. You have time when you don't when instead of working, you can just exist and taste the delight of just being with nothing to do. What if you break the law? Right? If you break right, so if you break the law, you're gonna go out and you're just not gonna find any not going to be anything in the fields, right? There just won't be any mun in the fields. Strangely, there's something strange about all of these laws. And I'll get to those in a moment, the strange thing about these laws. But for the time being, let me make this point. The point of the mun, therefore, the reason why there's all these parallels, it would seem to be that the Torah is saying that the mun is the redemption of the pain of evil Pharaoh. Right? Evil Pharaoh imposed all of these things upon you. But in, if you just take all of this together and you say, what does it all add up to? God gave you bread for a different reason than Pharaoh gave you bread. And God gave you law for a different reason than Pharaoh gave you law. God gave you bread and law because you were just tools. When, sorry, Pharaoh gave you bread and law because you were just tools. He gave you bread as a lure. Here's bread. All you can eat right? And then the, you combine that with the laws of the quotas, and you're slaves. You're just tools. God says, no, there's no bri- There's no bricks in my picture. This is just for you. I love you. I'm giving you this bread to make life good for you, to sustain you. And I'm giving you these laws. What are the laws for? I have no interest in the laws. The laws are there because they are good for you too, The laws sustain you every bit as much as the bricks sustain you. Which leads to a fascinating aspect of the man, the self-enforcing laws. Isn't that strange, those self-enforcing laws? Where else do you find self-enforcing laws? Remember, it wasn't just that you could have to collect an omer la gugolet and no more. It wasn't just that you're not allowed to hoard for tomorrow. And it wasn't just that you're not allowed to collect on Saturday. What if you tried to break the law? The laws were self-enforcing. Every last one of them. If you tried to collect more than a number, like a bullet, what happened? You came home. there, You didn't collect anymore. It just didn't work. The law enforced itself. It's like the craziest thing in the world, right? And... and and what happened if you tried to collect on Saturday? It wasn't there. But what happened if you tried to leave it over until tomorrow? It, it, it rotted, right? You just couldn't do it. You know what this is? This is law and training wheels. This is like, I'm going to give you three laws. Just a taste of law. Give you, we're going to try training wheels. We're on our way to Sinai. You know what's going to happen on Sinai? So that's the real deal. That's 613. Those are for real. On the way to Sinai, well, let's try this out. Three laws. They're obviously good for you. The whole ben- They're all there just to benefit you. And if they're too hard to keep, don't worry. You can't fail. If you're on training wheels, you, you, you will not. It's like, Daddy, don't leave out. Leave, like, keep, keep pushing the end of the bike. Don't let go of the end of the bike. Don't worry, I'm not letting go of the end of the bike. Right? I'm getting you used to law. Right? And I'm not letting you fail. They'll become a I just want to see. And by the way, later on in the Torah, in Parshas Akev, what exactly does the Torah say? Look at Parshas Akev. Parshas Akev. Let me bring you to Parshas Ekev for a second. Kol HaMitzvah. All of this law, all of these laws that I command you today, when you get into the land, make sure you do them. So that you should live. These laws are going to help you live in the land. Do all of these laws. But there's a problem. When you look at all the laws, law doesn't seem that inspiring. Laws seem like look at all law, it's like, look at all these laws. The tax code, I like to keep all the laws. What if I don't keep all of them? Is it really gonna be so bad? I really have to keep all these laws. What do the laws do for me? So God says, the laws are good for you. Lamantich you so that you live and so that you flourish. The whole point of the laws are to make you flourish. The if you ever have a problem with the law. God says, here's what I want you to remember. We had a 40-year test in the desert. I want you to remember that test. You know why I did it? Strange. I did it to afflict you. Isn't that strange? You know what that word reminds you of, to afflict you? That's Lachamoni. That is the Oni of Mitzrayim, the cardinal word of slavery. Why would God say that? God is saying, you think I'm bad, Pharaoh? Pharaoh afflicted you. Well, I afflicted you too. You were hungry in that desert. It was hard before you got that mud. It was tough. So what's the difference between my affliction and Pharaoh's affliction? So the text is going to tell you. What's the difference? I afflicted you. Why? L'nasotecha, to test you. I created a grand test for you in the desert. What was the purpose of the test? I wanted to see, I wanted to get you used to law, to see if you could abide law. Could you at least, there's going to be three laws, could you just keep these three? There's going to be training wheels, the whole thing, but you've just got to get used to it. The idea of law being good for you, the idea of law being benevolent, the idea of law sustaining you, so that you'd be in a position to accept the law at Sinai. So here's what I did. I created a little test. I oppressed you. How? By making you hungry. It wasn't like I liked making you hungry. I had to make you hungry. I had to make you good and starving before that month. And remember, you came to me with complaints. By the way, you know what the strangest things it says in Parshish Bashalah? God has heard your complaints. And you will know today that God is the God who took you out of Egypt in as much as he has heard your complaints. What's that about? I mean, he's talking to guys that he just took out of Egypt five days ago. And he's saying, you will know that I took you out of Egypt because I heard your complaints. What do you mean you know I took you out of Egypt? because I heard You know I took you out of Egypt because you remember what happened the day before yesterday when I split the sea. What do you mean you'll know why? Because it's all going back to bad Pharaoh. What did Barrett Pharaoh not do when we screamed him with complaints? He didn't listen. God says, "I'm not like that." The difference between me and Bad Pharaoh, I listen. Bad Pharaoh demanded one-way listening. The only thing he cared about is that you listened to him. You couldn't talk back. You couldn't complain. You couldn't do anything. It was just dismissed. He just repeated the same thing over and over again. He didn't listen to you because you were things. You weren't human beings. You were tools. I listen, and when I listen, you'll know you're not in Kansas anymore. You'll know you're not in Egypt anymore. That's how you know you left Egypt, when you have a master that listens to you. So here I am. I created this grand test. I wanted you to complain. I wanted you to be hungry so that I could show you something that would blow your mind. I wanted it to be so dramatic. I wanted you to be so viscerally hungry that what would happen next would be so etched into your consciousness, your natural consciousness, that you would never, ever forget this lesson. And here's what I wanted you to understand. I oppressed you and made you hungry. And then et at I fed you man. Why was it called man? Man, because the people asked, where did this come from? I don't even know what this is. Bread comes from the ground, you eat it. This doesn't come from the ground, it comes from the sky. What is this thing? It's not bread, only the bread. Only wheat nurtures me. Only stuff that comes from the ground nurtures me. What is this stuff? yadata. You didn't even know what it was. yadun You didn't even have any experience with it. From your forefathers before. father, no one had eaten man before. It was all new. You know why I did it? Laman So that you should know, not that you should believe, not that you should suspect, but that you should know the following truth. That it is not by bread alone that man lives, but on all that comes from the mouth of God that man lives. Think about those strange words, what those words mean. It's not by bread alone that man lives. It's by all that comes from the mouth of God that you live the self-enforcing law. What I want to suggest to you is the possibility that, and I'll let you go in a second, but that the self-enforcing laws, you know why they were self-enforcing? They were baked into the mun. They were one of the ingredients. Mun was heavenly grain mixed with heavenly laws, put it together, and it's mun. The laws are part of the bread. So the bread is subject to the laws. So obviously, the, if you don't, right, it's just not going to show up on Saturday because it's baked into the bread. You ate the laws, just like you ate the grain, and it came from heaven. And what did that show you? It showed you viscerally. You had an experience that law sustained you. It wasn't just that socially these were great laws and these wonderful laws. You actually ate the laws. The laws sustained you. You actually ate bread, and it didn't come from the ground. It came from me. What does that show you? It teaches you something. When you get into the land, you know what it teaches you? When you get into the land, you're going to have two problems. You're going to look at the bread, and you're going to say, huh, I made this bread. I harvested it from the ground, and I mixed it with water, and it's all my bread. There's no relationship with God. I make the bread. Because God says, you are going Eretz, you were going to Hashem Elokecha Meviyechal Eretz Tov Eretz Nachalim Ma'ayim Ayinot D'Tomad Yotim B'Beiko Bahara Eretz Chitav Asorah Gevonteinu Rimon Eretz Eitz Hashem Al Tavash Eretz L'zer Lo B'Musikus Tochah Bread is not going to be scarce. You're going to have to deal with the fact that you're going to easily be able to make bread in the land. You're going to have to understand something about it. What are you going to have to understand? Kilo Alachem Levado Yichyadam Kil Komo Tzappi Hashem Yichyadam You know what you're going to have to see. Do you know why bread sustains you? You think because the only thing that can sustain you is flour. Because flour comes from wheat, and wheat comes from the ground. And that's the biochemistry that sustains you, right? Okay, well, let's look at the mun. Did the mun sustain you? Okay, did the mun come from flour? No. Did the mun come from wheat? No. Well, maybe it came from the ground, just like bread. No, it didn't come from the ground, just like bread. So what's the only common denominator between mun and bread? The only common denominator is they both came from God right? They both came from the mouth of God. How so? Because God declared some things. God said, let there be earth. So the earth came from the mouth of God. And God said about the earth, desha." let it come and sprout grasses and sprout wheat. And that's why the wheat comes, because God said so. So you know where the sustenance is coming from bread? It's not because wheat has some magical ability to sustain you. And ground has some magical ability to sustain you. You know the part about bread that's actually sustaining you? What's actually sustaining you is the word of God, which when through the ground, which went through the wheat, which came out in bread. It's that part of it that's the sustenance. And that's the same thing you got in the mud. Just X out. It's just a math problem. X out all the things that aren't common denominators. The only thing that's left is that these are both the word of God. They both came from God, from God's declaration. Said, let it be here. And they both sustain you. And guess what else was in the mud? Laws. Laws were baked into the bread. The laws sustain you also. Right? And therefore, when you're in the land, don't think Understand what that bread is. He is the one that's giving you the stuff out of which that bread makes. He's giving you the raw materials and you're making bread out of it. And similarly, with law, his law, it's his abstract thing, his law. His law is just stone tablets. Until you take something and make something out of them, the same way you make something out of bread, and you process those and you bring it into life into the world and you live life according to that, and that's what you contribute to the process. The same way you contribute something to the process of bread, and you take the thing that God gave you and he makes something out of it, and that's wonderful. And you and gotta have a partnership and that's how you live. By making this by by partnering with God to create these good things that help sustain you. God is your parent in the sky who sustains you with everything that comes from his mouth, the very beginning of it is breath. That came from God's mouth. Because everything that comes from mother's mouth is going to sustain you. That's your source of life. So anything that comes from your source is going to sustain you. It doesn't make a difference if it's, if it's bread coming from the ground, coming from wheat. It all comes from God's declaration. It doesn't make a difference. If it's law, it all comes from God. It all sustains you. So I taught you it with the month. That was the training wheels so that you could accept the law happily at Sinai. Because you can't figure out how all 613 laws are good for you. They're a chok. And you might think they're like Paro's chok, like his quotas. You couldn't figure out why Paro was doing that. Can't figure out why God was doing that. But God let you trust him. You see, the great evil of Paro is Paro destroyed your sense of trust. Usually when somebody gives gift, it's bread, it's a gift. But Paro, it looked like a gift, but it wasn't. He was trying to addict you to bread. And he was trying to just hook you with that bread so you would need him, so you would come to him for the bread. But then he could impose those quotas of bricks upon you. He didn't care about you. He, he imposed law he didn't care about you. He was an authority figure who just didn't care. He abused you, and the danger is you come out of that, and you can't trust anybody anymore. You can't trust any authority figures anymore. So I let you trust me. I showed you in the man that I can feed you, that you can trust what comes from me. You can trust what comes from my mouth, and you you can trust whether it's bread or whether it's law. You can trust me, and therefore you can go to Sinai, and you can accept the law, and you can go into the land, and you can make bread, and you can understand the truth about these things, that this is me sustaining you, and you can keep the law. And it all started with the people remembering the bread that satisfied them. God says, I can give you bread that satisfies you too. That's bread for real. And when you eat in the land the bread that satisfies you, you can truly bless God because it was actually good for you. In the end, and I want to leave you with these thoughts A, what's in the Aram? God says, you know, there are some exceptions. The, the man it it it's going to fall apart every day except on Shabbos, when it won't fall apart the next day you can keep it for the for the morrow it'll be fine and at the very end of the parsha do you know what god, do you know what he says god says here's what i want you to do Take an omer's worth of mun. The same words about keeping it for Sabbath, don't keep it just from one day. Keep it for years, for centuries. Keep it for thousands of years, it will never rot. That little measure of mun, and put it in the ark next to the tablets. What's the mun doing in the ark next to the tablets? It's law and bread. It's law and bread. The two things that come from the mouth of God. You see this man? It came from me. It nourished you. You remember that? Law is the same thing. The law is the same thing. It comes from me. It nourishes you. That's why you can accept the law. Because you learned how to do it when you got the man. That's how they go together. It's the same thing. And why do you think on Shavuos we bring the Sheha? Because what are we really saying? We're saying on Shavuos, God, you gave us something. You gave us... Two things, too. There were two tablets. Two things you made. But they were just abstract, and you counted on us to translate them into the real world, to process them and to make something out of them and to live our life by them. But you gave us something else, too. You also gave us the earth, and you gave us wheat, and you gave us bread, and it's all the same thing, whether it's law or whether it's bread. It all comes from you. And our job is just to process it, just to take it and make it real, just to take that wheat and process it and turn it into bread and when we do we give it back to you as a gift you give us the law as a gift and we understand that's something we need to treasure and we say you also give us another gift you give us wheat and we're going to turn it into bread and we're going to give it back to you and it's all the same thing law and wheat law and wheat they just go together in the they go together in the aron what you give us is no difference between the bread and the man it's all the same thing and now to come back to the very first questions i asked you about matzah What was the evil of evil Pharaoh? The evil of Pharaoh is that he did give us real bread in the beginning, not matzah. Delicious bread, the bread that they remembered, the bread that satiated you, the bread that smelled wonderful, the bread that felt like a gift. Here we were. We weren't landed gentry. We were, we were just garim in the land. We didn't have land of our own to be able to make things. We were dependent upon other people giving us bread, and we didn't have a way to earn a living. And Pharaoh came and said, here's all this bread. And that is the Faustian bargain of slavery that the master offers you something that smells delicious, that you crave, that you need, that you're hungry, and you're oppressed, and you're hungry, and you need it, just like God later on in the desert, except that was for your benefit. But that benefit is modeled after a terrible test, which you once had, which wasn't for your benefit, when Pharaoh tested you and put out these bloves of bread. And by the way, you see the same thing. Read lightly on Leon Uris in the Warsaw Ghetto, right? The way the Nazis would lure them out of the bunkers was with hot-seeming bread placed in the middle of the streets in the Polish ghetto. That's how the taskmasters would do it, right? And the, the bread was there, and it lured you. And all you remembered was the free bread, but what did you exchange for that? You exchanged the chok, the evil, terrifying law, the quotas, which just got worse and worse and broke your back, and then what happened? And then one day Pharaoh said you were lazy. And when he said you were lazy, he took away your time. And he made you work harder and harder. And pretty soon, pretty soon, he realized that you were dependent upon him. And he could get more work out of you. And he could increase his profit margins if he gave you less and less quality bread. And he took ingredients out of it. And pretty soon there was nothing but water and flour. And pretty soon there wasn't even any time. All there was was just this, this essence of bread, this just flat bread that was just shoveled toward you that had no taste. It did not give you any sense of being. It didn't give you any sense of wonderfulness. All it did was gave you calories. That's all it was. It was shoveling calories in your system because you were a tool. You were a car with gasoline. And you shoveled the matzah in your system. There was no taste and there was no delight. And all there was was poor man's bread, broken bread for broken human beings. And you were being worn down and your bread was being worn down. And pretty soon you didn't have any more time. All time was squeezed out of you because it was all went to the bricks. And pretty soon your bread didn't have any time. And the time was squeezed out of the bread. And all that was left was the matzah. And even when you went home at night, when you were so exhausted, when you just tried to catch an hour and a half sleep at night, the only thing you could catch in that hour and a half sleep was you were just lucky to lay down at bread and to throw a little bit of bread and water and to shovel it in the oven and to eat the calories because you didn't even have the time to let it rise and let the bread come alive because you couldn't come alive. And that's what happened. The bread started wonderful and then it turned into matzah for 400 years, for 210 years of slavery until the time came for redemption. And when the time came for redemption, God said, you're going free tonight. But when you go free, I want you to eat matzah. I'm commanding you to eat matzah. You know why? For a different reason than you ate it for the last 210 years. You're also not going to have time tonight. But you know why you're not going to have time? Because you're going free. That's why. There's a different reason you have no time. Redeem the experience of having no time. Redeem the experience of eating flatbread with no time. Take away the anguish. How are you going to take away the anguish? How are you going to become something other than a broken slave? Anyone who experiences trauma has a choice. They can hide from it. They can never again remember the matzah. They can never again remember all the time being squeezed out of their life. That's one way to do it. But when you do that, the abuse haunts you in the night. It comes back and haunts you in nightmares. And you can never let it go. And the experience of being a slave will always be with you. So God says, we're not going to do it that way. You've got to remember. You've got to confront what it means to have no time. You have to confront what it means to have bread with no time, but you have to change the meaning of it. You have to be able to hold on to something else. Having bread with no time can mean something else too. It can mean you're going free. Having no time can be good also when you're rushing out of the den of slavery and therefore eat matzo one more time, but for a different reason. And that night, we had nothing on our backs but that unleavened bread, and we baked that bread in Sukkot. And when we did, we realized something. We just went out for a long journey, and we didn't even pack more than just one portion of this bread. And as we were eating that little flatbread around the campfire that first night in Sukkot, when it dawned on us that we had nothing to eat tomorrow, we realized that we just put ourselves in God's hands And this bread was Lechem Nehem This bread was the bread of faith. This was the bread where we put ourselves in God's hands and where we really redeemed ourselves from Egypt. You know why? Because what got us into Egypt? What got us into Egypt was the desire to hoard, the desire to just have control of your bread, to have all of this bread, all of this wonderful bread, more than you could ever eat, and to just have it and it be yours. And Pharaoh used that to addict you, and you became like an addict. And you were always searching for the high of that wonderful bread, but the bread got worse and worse, just like the drugs. And pretty soon, you couldn't even get high. It just was something you needed and something you craved and something you got uh, calories from, and it became matza. And this time, this time, don't hoard. This time, there's nothing to hoard. You just take one portion out with you, and you trust, and you place yourself in your master's hands. There's no reason to hoard. You're trusting God. And in the merit of that trust, a couple days later, God let you get really hungry again. And then he taught you this incredible lesson that it's not the ground that feeds you. It's not the wheat that feeds you. Ramses, with its breadbasket of Egypt, wasn't the source of everything that feed you. I can feed you too. I'm a master who can feed you. And I feed you my own way. What comes from my mouth feeds you. And that's what you need to learn. And I only have one law, a law that's ensconce the value that you yourself have shown by coming out of Egypt with nothing but the bread on your backs. The value of faith, the value of understanding that you don't hoard, the value that you just take what you need now and you trust that I'm going to give it to you tomorrow, that you don't go looking on Saturday, that you trust that it's going to be there, that you don't try to take more than an omar la gullet because you don't have to hoard, it's going to be there. And the laws are there to ensconce that wonderful value of love and faith that you've shown in me so that I can show love and faith And be worthy of that faith by giving you that manna every day. And that's the bargain. And in that moment, I also gave you something else. I gave you time. I gave you Shabbos. I allowed you to have the time to just be. And with the time that I gave you, I made you other than a slave. You were slaves because you had no time, because time was squeezed from you. The one law that I insist on is that you have time. You have time off just to be, just to exist, just to feel the wonderfulness of life and pretty soon your bread will have time too. And when you go into the land, you make, ma- make hamet's bread, you make wonderful bread, but always understand that I'm giving you that bread and it's, the, it's my declarations that are embedded, that are baked into that bread that is giving you that sustenance and your partners with me in creating that sustenance. That's what you need to remember and to show that you remember it. On the holiday, right? Celebrate your moment of coming out of Egypt. And then celebrate seven Sabbaths, the time when I told Sabbath to you. And then celebrate the Omer, with the Omer when you remember the manna, where you remember the law with training wheels, when you remember the first bread that I gave you that taught you these lessons about how you get sustenance. So that you could joyously accept the law on Shavuos seven times seven weeks later and understand that that was good for you, so that you can come in the land. And if you ever forget this, and if in the land you ever think that the laws are burdensome, and you ever think that the bread comes from you and doesn't come from God, just remember the Omer, just remember the Mun. Go back to that moment that's etched in your memory. Recall those moments, and they will teach you everything you need to know about the law and everything you need to know about the truth of the bread and. Every year, come to me, and on the day that I gave you two tablets, give me two loaves, and understand that these are really one and the same things. We're partners in creating bread, and we're partners in making law real, and in both, I'm partnering with you to give you life. Thank you.